And so I grew up in a fairly conservative community where women are typically, you get arranged married in your early 20s. When I came to the U.S. at 18, a lot of folks told my parents that it's crazy that they're sending me alone to the U.S. in a new country. And that's, you know, it was unheard of because typically you would have sons go out on their own to a new country, but they're like, for a daughter, that isn't the right thing. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Dini Mehta. Dini is the CRO of Lattice, an employee success platform that enables people leaders to build engaged, high-performing teams, inspire winning cultures, and make strategic decisions. Dini previously led winning sales teams at Quantcast and Drawbridge, and is one of the few female Asian-American revenue executives in tech. In this episode, we speak with Dini about growing up as an ambitious South Asian woman within a conservative extended family, running your own race by serving your why versus seeking to impress others, and how psyche management has helped her succeed in her career in sales. This might be an annoying question. Uh, is it Dini or Dini? What's like the best way to pronounce your name? It's Houdini without the who. <laughs> um, is, that, is, that, is that your full name? No, my full name is Nandini. But when I started in sales, I quickly realized, I worked at this company called Cosmics with the K, And I very quickly realized that if I make cold calls saying, hi, this is Nandini from Cosmics with the K, (laughs) I get very few callbacks. (laughs) And in college, I sort of, you know, folks would call me Dini. And so that's where I picked it up. But when I go back home, everyone calls me Nandini. Nandini. We like to start our podcast by asking our guests what their favorite dish was growing up. What was that for you? Oh, man, I had to think on this one. My favorite dish, I have to say, is pao bhaji. It's folks that don't know what it is. It's the ultimate Indian fast food, street food from from Mumbai. It's this like spicy mash of onions, potatoes, tomatoes, and vegetables. They serve it piping hot with dinner rolls. And I just loved pao bhaji growing up. Like every time I did well in school, that was my treat at home, which is my mom would make pao bhaji. Have you, have you been uh, back to Mumbai recently and eaten it like on, in the street vendors and the, the, the shops? Have you, have you had like the authentic version of that, like on the streets oh, 100%. there? Yes, I go back. My folks are still in India. And so every time I go visit them, I have to, like they don't, we're careful about where we eat it just to not get super sick, but I have to eat the, the sort of street food version of it every time I go back. Is there a version of uh, Delhi Belly in, in Mumbai Mumbai Belly? Do you, want, do you want to explain what Delhi Belly is for our, our audience as well? <laughs> it's like people get sick every time they go to India. I actually got married in India and my husband's from San Francisco. And we actually had like an army of doctors at, at the wedding ready because we were like, people are going to get Delhi Belly. We're going to feed them all this Indian food. We got to be ready. 
But thankfully, none of that. We didn't have to use any of the doctors. So <laughs> that's good to hear. Everyone adjusted well. And Dini, you grew up in India, right? For the first around 18 years of your life before you went to college in the US. Tell us more about that upbringing. What are some of the things that stood out to you? What are some values that are imparted on you? And talk to us too about your transition to the US, right? I'm sure growing up in one place your entire life and then making that complete 180 to a different place, that must've been quite a transition. So tell us about that story. Yeah, now um, I grew up in a small town called Nasik. It's in Western India. It's about four hours from Mumbai. Um, so that's where I grew up, or I call it Bombay, which is what I grew up calling it, but now it's Mumbai. I grew up in a fairly conservative family with very progressive parents. So my folks went to UT Austin and eventually went back home, settled there, and they raised my brother and I. So they sort of experienced the American education system, and they always sort of had hopes that we would go back to the U.S. for school. And so I grew up in a fairly conservative community where Women are typically, you, know, you get arranged married in your early 20s. That was the sort of expectation around which I, was, I grew up. But I had a brilliant older brother. And I think all my life, I just tried to compete with him and tried to get in his league, which, which has served me very well. And, and you know, it has sort of pushed me to punch way above my class. Both my parents you know, deeply instilled the values of the importance of education and, and work ethic. Those are the two things they would consistently remind us of. It's like, you have to... Take, you have to be very focused on your education because that's going to give you the independence and it's going to give you a lot of paths uh, that you can take from there. And it was like an expectation, like any hobby we take on, even if it was a chore in the house, the goal was to be like, be really, really good at it. Like mom, my mom would have like point systems on even like household chores for us to get really good at it. In hindsight, I'm like, well, my mom was a sales leader. That's yeah, do you get an accelerator once you meet your uh, <laughs> your tour quota, right? You get like two X points. Yeah, yeah. And she was definitely more of the stick than the carrot, but but it was it was a great upbringing. You mentioned something there, Dini, which resonated with my own family, which is a progressive parents' conservative family. Yeah. Can, can you touch on that topic a little bit more? What did that mean for you, having progressive parents but cons- a conservative family? Yeah, I think it, that's a really interesting point and, and, and one that I've thought about, um, especially as I look back at my upbringing and now, you know, as I think about like, if I want to have kids one day, what is the sort of upbringing I want to give my kids? And when I say it, it's my extended family. I come from a huge family. My, my dad has six brothers and sisters. My mom has seven siblings. They all have kids. And we're all very tight knit and it all comes from a really good place. But there is a sort of like, this is the expectations. This is what society expects. This is what our family expects. And those are the rules. Uh, and my parents didn't play by the rules as much. They sort of felt that they wanted to give their kids the opportunity to pick their own paths versus the paths that society had picked. And so that's what that I mean by when I say, you know, I had a conservative family, but very progressive parents. And I think a lot of that was just based, you know, given that they had the opportunity to go. UT Austin and study there. I'm curious if you sense that there are any social ramifications from trying to take that more progressive view, right? Because coming from a collective culture as well, it's very much so about the family units, how the family perceives a certain issue. And when you kind of go against the grain a bit, it can sometimes you get kind of like slapped on the wrist, right? So did you ever have instances of that dynamic happening or is it very open-minded in that sense as well? I remember when, uh, when I 
I came to the US at 18, a lot of folks told my parents that it's crazy that they're sending me alone to the US in a new country. And that's, you know, it was unheard of because typically you'd have sons go out on their own to a new country, but they're like, for a daughter, that isn't the right thing. And you're like risking a lot. And so I think there's a little bit of that. And I've take, taken a lot of the risk-taking elements that my parents lived by uh, in my day-to-day, which is if it serves you and if this works, if you're good at it, then you should run with it. I, I also appreciate the, like, the difficulty, but also the strength that you were finding as being like the, the woman and the daughter that left the country and, and you came by yourself. And um, I, I'm curious, like how you're, how you're thinking about that in terms of how does that nuance of you having to leave by yourself and um, coming to this country, like start to impact how you're constructing your own belief system around starting a family yourself? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to guilt the hell out of them. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's like, you don't know what I sacrificed to be here. You better be president. No, I'm kidding. I, the transition, you know, when, when I was going through it, it felt very natural. It didn't feel like a big deal at all. It was like, yeah, of course, I'm going to do this. My brother already moved. He went to Missouri. Um, and he's three years older. So he was already in the Midwest. And uh, when I left, I was like, yep, yeah, this is what we do, which is, you know, you graduate 18 years old, you start, you move to the U.S. and start your life there. But in hindsight, I remember I didn't, I couldn't tell the difference between currencies. I didn't understand the accents, didn't get any pop culture jokes. I still don't. My team makes so much fun of me when we go to karaoke because I don't know most of the songs in the 90s and 80s. So I was like, I don't grow up here. I don't know any of these songs. You don't know Bollywood songs. So, <laughs> um, so I think in hindsight, I think it's crazy that my parents had the courage to, to send me out there being like, yeah, you'll figure it out. But yeah, it was, it was new going from, you know, Mumbai to Kansas is definitely a cultural shock of, you know, there's not that many people out and about cultural norms are different. The words you use are different. How you interact with people are different, but I've always just been very lucky uh, in finding people that have helped, helped me see through different phases in life. And Dini, a common undercurrent that I really want to tap into here that I'm hearing from you is breaking all these barriers and going all these places that people who look like you, especially as a woman, typically don't. How do you think that plays into the way you think about things or the way you you act towards certain situations? I'm, I'm acutely aware of it, which I think you're right. That is the undercurrent that's constantly at the back of my head, back of my mind. And it shows up in a lot of places, especially at work. I think I'm acutely sensitive to like building inclusive environments. And even before I was in a leadership position, I cared deeply about, you know, sales being a predominantly male driven profession. I tried to fight it because I was like, maybe this is not for me, but then realized I loved everything about it, jumped into it. And as you moved into, as I moved up into management, I saw less and less people like me. And I think that gave me almost more fuel to like keep going because I was like all right I'm the only person in this room but that means I've got to keep going if the, if I even have a chance to reimagining the game with some different rules um, so I think it shows up in that way but I'm very aware of it and then secondly I think creating a consistent and level playing field in the workplace is something that's core to my value system and that translates fairly well in sales because you want to make sure everybody has equal opportunity um, in sort of what they're doing. 
but growing up, I was constantly questioning the status quo of, of the society and my parents encouraged me to do that. And I think I, I carry that with me in most interactions, personal or professional. I'm curious to meet what the beginning of your career looked like. And you're doing such an amazing job of making sure that now people who are coming up who are also like young Indian women um, who, who are looking into a path in sales that they can see someone who looks like them and they could believe that they can do something themselves. Were your parents really excited about you to start in a sales career? And also, how did you feel like motivated to keep doing what you're doing without necessarily seeing a lot of people who look like you um, who are in leadership? Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely touch on that. So when I graduated college, I, had, I got two jobs. One was a research job because I worked in a lab most all through undergrad, and, which was in Kansas. And the other job was work, come work at a startup and just be the business coordinator. So do a bunch of generalist work and learn about the business. And my parents were like, of course you should take the research job. Like, why would you? Like, that seems it connects your biology degree. Like, that's the right path. Like this is a non, this is a non-starter. My brother was here and I wanted, I'd heard about, you know, working in tech and what that's like from him. And I really wanted to give that a shot. And so I decided to move out here and I fell into startups. I've only worked with startups and I tried to fight sales for a bit because I thought, you know, it was ingrained in me. I didn't have many folks in my family that had been in sales. And so I thought it was, it was something that was beneath me and I shouldn't be doing sales. And it couldn't be farther from the truth because sales is, it's one of those professions that is, while the barrier to entry is low, getting good at it is really, really hard. And I realized that once, once, and I had a passion for it. I loved everything about it. It was numbers driven. It was objective. It was high pressure, high reward. And so I decided to, to give it a shot and then realized I, I was half decent at it. And then got my first, first experience scaling go-to-markets at Quantcast, which was uh, my first experience being part of an early team, bringing a new product to a new market. So much fun doing it. And then I've since then sort of chased that in a lot of my opportunities because what gets me out of bed is seeing people grow and develop around me and, and building a winning culture. Like those are my two things that get me out of bed every day. But that's how I got started. A core dimension of sales is the nature of it being very high risk, high reward, which you alluded to, it's it's very much so you eat what you kill, right? And it, it seems like a very high pressure environment. I want to connect this to something you've written about, right? Which is this idea of not letting your ambition steal your joy, especially mm-hmm. in an environment like sales, where it is very numbers driven. There are very tangible quantitative metrics that are set out for you. How do you reconcile those two mindsets in this kind of environment where that kind of thinking is the status quo? Yeah, I know it's such a good point. And I talk about this all the time with my team. Sales is a competitive sport, but you have to run your own race. I think it can, it's very easy to get pulled into the dashboard and how are you doing against someone else, but they had a different starting point. You have a different starting point. And I really took that to heart when I first started in sales sort of getting discouraged, I would just sort of, when I would have a bad month or a bad week, I would focus on the fact that I got better at these three skills and I'm forging my own path. I'm running my own race. And at the end of the day, I get joy out of the work I was doing. And if I'm getting better, if I get joy out of it, that was my why versus sort of competing with external variables. 
And so that is one thing that, you know, how do you run your own race? And I, over time, I think if you start making choices that serve your why versus what will impress others, um, I've just found a lot of joy out of like, then it doesn't feel like work. I'm just doing this because this is what I want to do. This is what I feel good about doing. Um, and I surround myself with people that remind me that it's, it's super important to have fun as much as it is about like, hey, yeah, we got to get work done. And it's about achieving big goals together. But it's also just about having fun and enjoying the journey as cheesy as that sounds. One thing I've noticed from at least my experience working for Full H the sales teams is that crushing your quota isn't always the only thing that comes into play when you're thinking about trajectory to leadership. And especially, I'd be curious to hear your perspective, what that career growth looked like for you, especially when there aren't many folks in upper management who serve as archetypes for what leadership could look like that you can resonate with. Tell us about that journey for you of advancing through your career to show that, hey, someone like me can be here. Yeah, no, I think um, when I first realized that I like sales and I was good at it, I was like, I'm never going to, I'm just going to keep selling. I love the autonomy. I love the control I have of my numbers. Uh, and if I crush my numbers, I just get to do whatever I want. And so I love the autonomy and freedom that you can earn through sales because it's so objective. And it was a math problem in a lot of ways where I was like, I, I think I, I'm going to love this and I'm just going to keep doing this forever. And at some point when we were going through hyper growth, I, I quickly realized that I got more satisfaction out of helping others get their first deal than me closing the next big deal. And that was a turning point for me in my journey to realize that, okay, maybe this, you know, closing deals is fun but I actually love creating a community and seeing other people find their why. Other people get really good at certain pieces of the puzzle. And at that point, I didn't even think about, oh, there's not many folks in leadership that don't look like me. I was just focused on like, I like this company. I have a great team. I want to get good at this. But as I started moving up in my career, I remember a networking event I went to, there was 23 sales leaders and I was the only woman in attendance. There's, you know, four other women, but they were organizing the event. And that's when it hit me that I was like, wow, this is, this is rare. Because until that point, I didn't even think of it. I was so focused on just doing the job and getting good at the job. And at that point, I think I became very aware. This is the unfortunate reality in the, in the sales leadership world. And now, you know, that is something that's close to my heart since then, which is how do we encourage women in sales? Because there's a lot of good qualities in building that diverse team that can come in and, and do a great job at it. But yeah, I think the other sort of things that I've learned, tips and tricks of like outside of crushing your number, because it is a different role. Being a sales manager is very different than being great at sales. And we instill this in, in our, our approach today at Lattice um, is having competencies beyond the numbers, beyond the results that are easy to track? What are the things, what are the traits that, that you have to be great at to become a manager? Because it, it is in some ways a completely different role in how can folks get exposure to the type of work you would do in an effort to, to decide if they even want it. So yeah, I've in, in some ways been really lucky to have folks that have taken chances on me. And at the end of the day, I, I focus on getting 3x better if, if, it, if that's what it takes to get a shot. This might be this might be a stretch. I'm curious if you have like uh, like a fun story or of a, of a memory 
throughout your sales career, whether it was like closing a really big deal, like losing a potential client in reflection that there was something a part of like your upbringing and a part of your identity and culture that like kind of led you to that decision-making. I'm curious if anything comes to mind uh, when thinking about that. I've had instances where um, hiring for people, hiring for my team, and the person on the the candidate realized that they're reporting to a woman and an immigrant and, and decided to basically take themselves out of the running for that main reason, which was like such a shocking sort of awareness of, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was a thing that people take into account. But um, I typically hold on to all the good and don't remember any of the bad. So <laughs> that's probably the only one that, that comes to mind. Thank you for sharing that. How do you start to, I guess, change your perspective or, or I guess, like train your perception to not let those negative experiences impact you in the long run? Because I think that also has led to your personal success and your professional success, even just hearing that story and, and, and like seeing you just like still smiling through that. What have been those habits or ways of thinking um, that, that have helped you kind of reframe things and think more positively? Yeah, I think psyche management is definitely one of my superpowers. I think in sales, like it's about process, skill set, and psyche management. And people talk about skill set and process a lot. And I think psyche management goes really hand in hand because you have to deliver month after month, quarter after quarter. Ways I train my brain is every time when things don't go your way or you're tired, you're working hard and aren't seeing the results, it's easy to get into either a victim mindset or get angry at the world, um, or just be upset and disappointed and get in a very negative headspace. And I just remind myself that it's, this is, there's, you have, you have to take an abundance mindset versus a scarce one. I really try to focus on gratitude instead of feeling entitled to something. And I remind myself of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a girl from a small town in India, living the dream in San Francisco. Every time I get really focused in on some little thing that didn't go my way. And so I think if you keep sort of training your brain to that there's, you know, people have the best intentions and sometimes things get missed because I don't want to carry that, carry that. I want to be focused on the positive because there's a lot of positive out there. It's a really awesome mindset, Dini, and one that I love to curate more of. So I'll have to listen back to this recording and, and you know, absorb those words of wisdom there. And now that you've had almost a decade long career in sales and you are now in the position to be able to lead the entire revenue organization, which is amazing. I'd be really curious to learn about how given various facets of your identity, being a a woman, being of Asian American descent, being an immigrant, you know, how some of these dimensions plus some of these values that you grew up with, how they all come together now to influence how you lead, how you show up in the workplace, and also how you want to rewrite the rules a bit to make the, the landscape more inclusive for, for others. Yeah, no, I think one that I think about a lot, and I think at the end of the day, it's about, I want to create this space where everyone can be their authentic self. And it starts with me being my authentic self and being vulnerable every single day, leading with empathy, um, understanding that people have a unique perspective and how do we instead of, I, I wanna showcase that unique perspective and really create that space for people. So we do a lot of little things at Lattice for folks to know that when they join 
the company. We do show and tells, which the goal for show and tells is you talk about something about your upbringing, your perspective that's unique to you, and how does that make you a unique Letitian? And the goal is to showcase some of the stories, you know, we all have that really shape us. That's core to something that I, something that we do. And so I talk about psychological safety a lot with my managers, with my leaders, that if folks aren't publicly disagreeing with stuff in team meetings with you and one-on-ones, then they're doing it in Slack channels and inside conversations. And I'd rather have, so a lot of times when people join meetings, are, are they're surprised to see the amount of folks just sort of disagreeing and saying, I don't know, passionately arguing the counterpoint. And I love that. Because I'm like, that shows that people care and that shows that they feel comfortable sharing their opinion. And it's a journey I'm still learning as we go through this. But I, I feel really grateful to have the autonomy in the space to experiment with, you know, how do you build a really collaborative, supportive, caring culture, but also win. Because both of those things, in my mind, are extremely important. Can't, you can't just do one or the other. I love that. Uh, being feeling psychologically safe is the the foundation and then after that it's you you care more because you do feel psychologically safe and and because you care more you care more about the business you care more about the people that are operating in it and so you will share your opinion as they come up Denise, we'd like to end our podcast by asking um pretty general question about what is the advice that you would give to yourself as you were starting your career You've been giving us a lot of great advice throughout the entire podcast as well, but wanted to make sure that we left the space if you had anything else you wanted to share. I think if I were to give advice to my um, younger self is like staying true to who I am as a person and following my instincts. I think externally, a lot of times the career moves that I would make didn't make a lot of sense because they weren't the sort of linear trajectory that you would see. And it caused me a lot of angst when, when making those, when making those career moves in hindsight, if I just optimized for learning and didn't care, cared less about what it, you know, what, what's the, what's the impact of this move, I would have saved myself a lot of angst and have more fun doing it. I I have a lot of fun now at work and I wish I, I did more of that growing up, which I was so sort of laser focused on what do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? How do I network and and get really good at what I need to my next stage? And so I just told myself to chill out a bit. That is exactly what I'm trying to do after this call. Just go outside, <laughs> walk around, chill out chill for out a, a bit. bit. Try and chill out. <laughs> no, that's, that's so important. <laughs> Try and take a walk. Awesome. Well, Dini, thank you so, so much for coming on with us today. This was a super fun conversation and we so appreciate you sharing your perspectives and all your insights here. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Really appreciated this conversation. Super fun. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm -hmm.